Shall we just bow our heads? Dear Father, thank you for, for Jesus. We thank you for the wonderful friend and saviour that he is to us. We thank you that we can take all things to him in prayer, Lord. We thank you that we can gather here this morning to worship you. We thank you that your Holy Spirit we know is with us this morning. Lord, you know each of us inside out. You know our every need. You know every way in which we need to change. So speak to us this morning, Father. Let us open our ears and our hearts to what you have to say to us. May we grow in the Spirit, Lord, and produce good fruit for your glory. Father, this morning we pray for our world where we see so much need and suffering everywhere we look. We pray for our leaders across the world that they will look to do your will. We pray, Lord, for an end to the wars and to all the fighting that we see. We pray that you will help relieve the suffering that's brought about by poverty, which we see more and more of. And you bring an end, Lord, to corruption so that everybody in the world can be treated fairly. We pray for those Christians who are persecuted for their faith. Lord, we pray that you bless them and set them free. And we pray more locally, we pray for this community, this this town of Horwich. We pray this Christmas time that many will seek you out and want to find more about the birth of Jesus and come to know him as your saviour. Help us to share with them the good news that can transform their lives. And we pray for our church, Lord. We do thank you for our church. We know that there is much work to be done, Lord, and work that you've placed on us, and we thank you for blessing us with that work. Help us to want to serve you better. Show us your will, Lord, and let this church shine with your light into the darkness of this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're going to continue on our series of David. So we're now on the fourth talk in this series on David. And last week, Eric spoke to us about the pride and the jealousy of King Saul and how this led him to become obsessed with killing David. He also told us about the deep friendship between Saul's son, Jonathan, and Saul's enemy, David. And today I want us to take us to the end of the first book of Samuel and look at two things. Firstly, we'll look at the time where David goes on the run from the murderous Saul, who's desperate to kill him. And secondly, we look at the death of Saul and just reflect a little bit more on the tragic life and the death of Saul. So we've got this story, haven't we, where Saul's becoming more and more jealous of David. And David, warned by Jonathan, decides he'd better flee or he knows that Saul will kill him. So he does a runner and with several hundred of his men he goes... He takes his army with him and he goes off into the desert. And they are pursued over many years by Saul's troops and have to keep moving from place to place. So David, at this point, imagine how David must have felt. He's abandoned absolutely everything and had to go on the run. So he's abandoned his family. He's had to abandon all the possessions that he built up all his life. He's had to abandon all his friends, even Jonathan, who we know he loved so much. And he's out of contact with him now. He can't speak to him. And this went on for many, many years, and the place he fled to was the desert. And the Judean desert is a really unforgiving place. It's an awful place to to try and live. There's um, really steep cliffs. It's a desert, so it's very dry and it's dusty. 
and there's caves pocketed in these cliffs and they would they would often hide in the caves and sort of spend their time out there. It would be blistering hot temperatures by day and like it is in the desert, it goes freezing cold at night. So very harsh conditions that he was trying to live in. There were a few places within the desert that were green. There's little bits of palm trees and bits of grass and little oases. But of course, if he tried to live in those places then he knows that's where Saul would go looking for him. So he could go there briefly, but he would have to move on and go and find other refuge and other places to live. So he had this very hard existence. And we see how David was feeling, because the good thing that we have in the Bible is we have the Psalms, and many of the Psalms were written by David. And we can look at some of those Psalms that were written by David at that time, which tells us so clearly where his heart was, what he was feeling, and what he was thinking. So Psalm 59 is one of those. So I'll just read to you a part of Psalm 59 now, which is David speaking. He says, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense of sin of mine, Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me, look on my plight. You, Lord God Almighty, you are the God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. So he's he's building up his anger, isn't he? His frustration with his situation, really wanting God to punish the people who were pursuing him because he hasn't done anything wrong. After a bit more pleading for God to pour out more wrath on his enemies, he, he then goes on to say this. But I will sing of your strength in the morning, I will sing of your love. For you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength, I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. So he's got this mixture of real anger, real frustration, real desperation that he feels. But yet, at the same time, what does he do? He just looks to God. He just looks more and more on God and um, praises him. Uh, it's a bit like that song that sometimes we sing, I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. And that's the thing that we, we need to do, isn't it? When we're faced with difficult situations, draw even closer to God and just look to him. And that's what David does. And we see more of that a few psalms later in Psalm 63. I'll just read Psalm 63 to you because it's important we understand the, the heart of David and it comes through so clearly through these psalms. So he says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing Lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glorify, will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. So 
Can you see so clearly what David was thinking and feeling at that time? And he was in this desert for a long, long time, maybe, sorry, maybe 10 years on the run. He was frightened, but he wasn't anxious because he, he had come so close to God and he was trusting in him. But at the same time, he must have felt abandoned by God because he would have prayed for God to alleviate his circumstances, for him to change things, for him to stop Saul pursuing him. But God didn't do that. Um, so, you know, but at the same time, he still believed in God. He still held on to God and he trusted in him. And he was a man who, despite this hardship, had a heart of service, complete devotion to God, and he was always seeking to do God's will. He was always asking God, what, what do you want me to do, God? What do I do next? And we see this very clearly, this character of David, when he has one, not one, but two very obvious chances to kill Saul. So let's just have a look at those now. So first of all, in the first of these, David and his men are hiding in what must have been a, a huge cave. And we're told that Saul enters the cave to relieve himself, totally unaware that David and his men are in there. So David's men urge him to kill Saul at that point. They say, God has delivered Saul into your hands. There he is in our cave. You can see him there. Just go, just go and kill him. And it must have been very dark in this cave and where Saul was because David gets near enough to Saul that he can actually cut off the corner of his robe. So he gets his sword and he, he just cuts off a corner of his robe and doesn't kill him. He refuses to kill him. Saul leaves the cave and then David shouts after him. He calls to him. He says, my lord and king. And he actually gets down on the ground to just show to Saul that he's not trying to kill him and he, he bows down. He's saying, I appreciate you are the king. And he won't kill him. And he shows him this corner of the robe. He's a long distance away by now, but he picks up the corner of his robe and he says, look, if I wanted to kill you, I could have killed you. And Saul sees this and he looks at, wants to look back at David in amazement. And he weeps <coughs> in response and says, basically that he knows that David is a better man than he is. He says that God will reward him for his actions and make him king over all of Israel. <coughs> and he begs David not to kill off his descendants. And then Saul goes on his way. So Saul, at this point, he sounds almost repentant, doesn't he? He sounds like he's, he's sorry, but he never actually says he's sorry. He never does or indi indicates anything that says he's going to change his ways. And if anything, actually, what we can read into this, it probably actually wound Saul up even more to make him more jealous of David. Because what he knows is because David is such a good man and he's clearly got God with him, that he, he sees that and sees that God's plan is for David and he's going to make David the king. So he carries on in this relentless pursuit of David and wanting to kill him. And he chases him further in the desert. Now, a few chapters later, after Saul's been chasing David, there's other things going on. And I do urge you to actually read these stories because they're amazing stories. I mean, I haven't got a chance to even, with this series, just to cover everything. But some amazing stories in here. But basically, the theme is that, that Saul continues to, to pursue David. And uh, David has a second chance to kill Saul a little later on. Um, this time, they are, Saul is with his army. It's at night time. Saul is sleeping in the middle of his army and they're all camped around him. Um, and David, in the middle of the night, enters the camp with a colleague of his taken from, from his army. 
And he sees, he sees Saul sleeping and, and, and the colleague from his army says to him, let me kill him because he's, Saul's spear is next to his head as he's sleeping. He says, just let me, let me kill him. And David says no. And he, it repeats the pattern of the first chance that he had to kill him. Instead, what he does is he, he sneaks into the camp. Again, God must have been protecting him. And he takes the spear and he takes a jug of water that was there in the middle of the camp as well. Uh, and he takes them away. And once he's got far enough away from the camp, again he shouts back and he shouts to Saul, look, here I have proof. Again, I could have killed you. Here's the spear. Here's this jug of water. I was right next to you. And this time, Saul's response sounds even more repentant than the last one. Because he says, I have sinned this time. So he acknowledges his sin. Come back, David, my son. Because you considered my life precious today, I will not try, try to harm you again. Surely I've acted like a fool and I've been terribly wrong. However, David doesn't believe him. You know, straight after that it says David just doesn't believe him. And again he flees and this time he flees even further away. So what do we see from these two incidents? Well the first is that Saul seems completely unable to properly change his ways might say things that sound repentant but really inside he isn't changing. He recognises that David is the one who God has chosen over him. God appointed him king when the people asked for a king, appointed Saul a king but that, that decision has been changed and now it is that David will become the next king. And because of that, his pride and his jealousy that Saul feels overrides everything and he continues to be obsessed with killing David. Saul always puts his own ambitions, his own desires above those of God and deliberately goes against the will of God time after time. Because when we look at David, we see the complete opposite. See, David is always looking to do God's will. He's massively aggrieved by this situation he finds himself in. He's angry, he's suffering real hardship, but he won't do anything that benefits himself if he fears that that is not God's will. He even feels a terrible sense of guilt for the fact that he cut off part of Saul's robe because Saul was the anointed king and he's, he's cut off part of his robe and he felt terrible after he'd done that. You know, he, so you can see how much he wants to do what God wants him to do, how much he fears God and doing the wrong thing as well. And also, David is an abundantly patient man he could have ended his own suffering had he killed Saul, but he doesn't. He's prepared to wait on God in God's timing for God to come and to anoint, you know, to make him the king and to get rid of his suffering, but he isn't going to push that. He isn't going to do anything himself. So he's a very patient man who waits for God's timing. So David, because of that patience, continues to suffer exile in the desert and he must have been tested so badly. So what about the times that we find ourselves in the desert? Not literally in the desert, but our lives can feel very similar to those of David. We call out to God to change our circumstances because we can't stand them anymore. It's God, I just can't stand being in this circumstances. Just make things right, make things better. But nothing happens and we ask ourselves, where is God? Why isn't he helping me? And these questions tumble through our minds in the same way as they must have tumbled through David's. There are times when we create our own desert, when we turn our back on God, when we don't turn to God. <clears throat> but this is very much a time when 
we are pleading with God. You know, we really want God to, to fix things for us. And if you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. Many of the great characters in the Bible seem to have gone through times where God seems very distant to them. Even Jesus on the cross echoed the words in Psalm 22 when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But of course God didn't forsake Jesus in that way. God was using that time when Jesus on the cross to work out his amazing, amazing plan that he had. Such a momentous plan. And it's the same with us sometimes. When we feel like God isn't helping us, they are the times when God is really working out a purpose in our lives. It, you know, if he, sim- if he simply came in and fixed all the circumstances in our lives, we'd never mature. I mean, the reality is if we prayed to God, do this, do that, and God became our slave to make all our circumstances right, we wouldn't change, we wouldn't draw close to God in the same way we do when things are difficult. And we wouldn't change inside. Sometimes we need to go through that for things to be fixed with, with, with us and God. There's a saying, isn't there, that if something is worth having, it's worth waiting for. And sometimes in life we have to go through what you might think of as the cocoon stage. So like the caterpillar, you know, not the beautifulest little animal in the world, is it? <laughs> but sometimes the caterpillar, um, over winter, that will go into this cocoon. And the cocoon will look just dark, a hard object, and it looks like nothing's happening. All you can see is this dark shape. Uh, but inside there's this wonderful transformation uh, where that ugly little caterpillars being transformed into a, a beautiful butterfly and we know that eventually that cocoon breaks open and this beautiful thing opens its wings and flies away. So David waited in the dry land of the desert and while we might be in the rainy sort of lands of Horwich we can experience very similar things to what David did. Um, you know the desert can say let it rain, let it rain but You know, it rains when it's going to rain and the desert needs to wait. And it's the same with us. Sometimes when we're in that cocoon stage or that desert stage of life, we just need to wait. We need to do what David did, though, while we're waiting. This is the important bit. We need to look to God. We need to keep our eyes very much focused on the Lord. And we know that then he's working on us. He's changing us. We always ask God, don't we? Lord, change me, change me. But then we don't like it when the difficult times come, when he really is changing us. So if we wait patiently like David, then the day will come when we come out of that cocoon and we open our wings and we fly like butterflies. The important thing is just keeping facing in the direction of God. So that's the first thing. The second thing is just having a look now at at Saul's death in what was a tragic end to a tragic life. Let me just read... These words in chapter 31, right at the end of the first book of Samuel. It says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinabad, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armour-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armour-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. When the armour-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons and his armour-bearer and all his men died together that same day. 
So what a sad ending to Saul's life. We also see that Jonathan was killed in this battle as well. So Saul was a man who had everything going for him at the beginning. He'd been anointed as king, um, but he'd lived for many years tormented, totally tormented by pride and jealousy, and eventually falls on his own sword on the battlefield. And all his men are killed with him, say his sons as well. So such a tragic ending. So let's just recap on what went wrong for Saul. What, are there any lessons that we can draw from Saul's life? Well, really, it starts way back. I mean, Eric covered this last week, you know, but it, initially it starts where he's just disobedient to God. He won't do exactly what God asks him. Um, so through Samuel, God asked him to wipe out the Amalekites and all their animals. But Saul didn't do that initially. He chose to make himself popular with people and he kept back some of the animals that they could use for sacrifices. But he always did sort of what God wanted, but then he did what really he wanted to do himself. And that was the start of his downfall. And the reason he did that was this pride that he had, which led him to want to be, like say, popular. It led him to becoming just jealous of David. And we can do that, can't we? You know, we can compare ourselves with other people and it can be a real downfall. You know, we all have to just know that we're all the same. We're not in competition with each other. We all love one another. And if you ever become pride or jealous, proud or jealous or anything like that, you know, we've really got to root that sin out. So even though Saul was a man who believed in God, sought out his direction and his strength, his pride and jealousy caused him to ignore God's will. And it didn't fit with what he wanted. So he put himself first and his own glory instead of God's. He wasn't humble enough to put God first. And by failing to do God's will, Saul found himself in a desert that was far worse, to my mind, than the desert that David found himself in. David was in the desert, was in uncomfortable circumstances, but he had God. He always had that hope. He always had that assurance that one day things were going to be good. Whereas Saul was the opposite. He was in comfortable circumstances, but he was distant from God. He distanced himself. And because of his sin, and like I said, his pride and envy, he became so distant. And even at the end, when he died, he chose to basically commit suicide rather than face the humiliation, again, because of his pride of actually being taken by, by the army and killed by them. So the message for us really is to make sure that any sin whether it's pride, envy, anything else, doesn't come between us and God. In the last sermon I spoke about pursuing a good heart and the importance of that. And a key part of pursuing a good heart is repentance. It's understanding where we are sinning. It's asking God to change us. We need to root out those sins that lurk within us. <clears throat> Help us to be more like David who were told was a, God, a man after God's own heart and always put God first in everything. David was far from perfect. This isn't the end of the series on David. We've got a second book of Samuel to look forward to and there'll be, I think Eric and Ray will speak to us about that in, in the new year. And we'll see that David was far from perfect and he made loads of big mistakes. Um, but the thing that he did is, despite those mistakes, he kept focused on God and he repented. He was genuinely sorry when he got things wrong and asked God to change him. So God looked after David, and he kept him safe. He sent his Holy Spirit to be with him. He developed his character through those difficult times, and may he do the same with us.
because there might be times when we still feel as much as we try that we feel more like Saul than David when times when we fail miserably we're trying to do our best but we fail we know that at times there'll be times when we go our selfish ways when God's put an afterthought to what we want and we slip back into ways of doing things but of course we have the good news of Jesus don't we that we can put our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour we can cast all of those sins on him as long as we're truly sorry in our hearts Jesus helps us to change through his Holy Spirit he helps us to keep changing so just be sorry for what we've done when we do make mistakes ask his Holy Spirit to come in and change us ask that our hearts can be renewed and that our sinful nature will be changed we have a wonderful promise that when we do this we will be forgiven so let us always be thankful for the cross and for the price that Jesus paid to save us let us pray dear father we thank you for these scriptures that show us how you work in our lives Lord, we pray for those times when we are stuck in the desert, when our circumstances are difficult and life is a real challenge. We pray that during these times we keep our eyes firmly fixed on you. Give us the patience to see you working for our good. Please use these times to develop us and help us become the people you want us to be. Help us, Father, to put you first in everything. Help us to do your will and to serve you and each other better than what we do. And Lord, when we fail, just please forgive us. Help us to know how to be truly sorry. Help us to seek with all our hearts to change and take the path back to you. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the sacrifice on the cross. That means that we can be forgiven and we can be restored. Without him, we would be lost, but instead we delight in being able to call him our Lord and Saviour. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Thank you for the precious gift of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And in that way, now we're going to sing our next hymn, which is Give Thanks. Let's just give thanks to God as we sing this. Let's stand together and... Uh... Really give.